All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time for an ad for Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. As always, you can get it for free on the App Store. Page in my rhyme book, page in my rhyme book, page in my page in my page in my rhyme book. Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. It is indeed. I'm Kiss. I am Damon. And what we do here on this year podcast is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. We are headed toward the end of our notebook suite. It's been a hell of a ride and we are going out with a bang. We have return guest, brilliant thinker, writer, movement worker, facilitator, Adrian Marie Brown is back on Ergo. And boy, did we have a meta conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So just to give some folks uh, a little bit of context, in addition to talking about process and the relationship between facilitation and writing and the page and bodies in a room, uh, we really focused a lot on an interesting sequence of events that started in the summer of 2020. It was interesting for us because I actually didn't know about this until very recently, until we already had her coming on the show. So it was just uh, a cool timing to be able to reflect on a public exercise of the intersections of writing and literacy and communal accountability, harm, and you know, principled struggle. So to just give a little context, because we don't do that in the conversation, in July, in the middle of the Uprising, Adrian wrote a piece uh, that was published on her blog called Unthinkable Thoughts, Call-Out Culture in the Age of COVID-19. In response to this piece, while there were a lot of people who were really moved by it and responded positively, there was a forceful and robust critique that really pushed back against some of the one languages she used and then also some of the claims around this idea of call-out culture, uh, which if you've read an op-ed page in any paper ever, you know how many just boring arguments and bad faith arguments there are about that. And this was not that, but it did kind of traffic in some of the same metaphors and reinforce or trigger some of the same responses. And as one would hope from a movement worker doing the kind of work she does, she listened, revised, responded. uh, And in her new book, uh, We Will Not Cancel Us, shares the revised version of the essay as well as kind of an explanation of what went down. So we talked about that revision process, that experience of receiving that critique in a way that maybe she hadn't before, um, and maybe some of the ways that we can use this as a case study for both writing in community and community accountability on a larger scale. Yeah, really moved by the power of metaphor. So we're going to get into the conversation. It was really rich um, and, you know, Adrienne is, is, is a brilliant thinker and really dynamic speaker. So I was excited to just have a little bit of her time and we are eager to present you this conversation with Adrienne Marie Brown. Before we hop in, the writing prompt from Adrienne is to ask yourself and then answer on the page the question, if the world was ending tomorrow, what do you want to write? So even if you know that no one might ever read it because there's annihilation on the brink, what do you want to make sure gets down on the page before we disappear? It's a very Adrian Marie Brown prompt and a very Adrian Marie Brown conversation. Let's get to it in our notebook suite here on Ergo. Let's do it. 
we are bringing home our notebook suite with a wonderful return guest here on Ergo and a wonderful person and writer and thinker who I'm so excited to be in conversation with in this time. Folks, Adrian Marie Brown is here. Burr, 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 burr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, the sound effects are just really impressive. <laughs> What's funny is over the years, we've started actually putting in sound effects in post, but that's the one that remains from There's the heart, nothing you know? else that just really gets, you know, the, the, the embodied excitement of that particular moment. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you, know, you don't just throw that one around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, no, you got to save that for when it's special. <laughs> Which, to be fair, we have done it for every guest for the last 185 episodes. But exactly. there was a special verb today. But know? I have some more reverb <laughs> in there. <laughs> yeah. But also, I feel like y'all don't really talk to people you're not excited to talk to. So That is true. That's like That's 90% true. true. Only... <laughs> You know, there's someone out there yeah. like, am I the 10%? <laughs> we yeah, got to keep these like, guests on their toes, mystery. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Don't get lazy, guests. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let, let's start where we start every episode, which is in this time, this moment, this season, however you define time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? <sighs> I mean, I really appreciate that I'm here to speak to y'all with my writer's hat on because with a writer's hat on, the pandemic is one of those big secretive kind of blessings for a writer's life. All the containment that is so hard to achieve is just built into the structure of this crisis. So it's like, you are not, you can't go anywhere. You can't travel. You can't distract yourself the way you often can. It's like, I'm not going to the club. (laughs) I can't even go to the grocery store. (laughs) I just need to sit in my house and So then you just have to sit and look at what needs to be written and contend with how you want to spend your time, which for me, the amount of death that we've had in this past year, some of it very, very close to me, uh, has really just made me reckon with how do I want to spend my time? I reckon with that regularly. I'm always thinking about apocalypse and endings and grief, and it's a little bit of an obsession, but it's really right around, all around, all around. And so my official title now with the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute is writer in residence. Because so I was like, really, how I want to spend my miraculous life is writing. The structure of this year is writing. And the time is how much writing in how many different forms can I do? Yeah. So the world is treating me well as a writer. The way I'm treating the world is as a griever. You know, I really feel like I've been dropping into the part of me that is like I can tap into collective grief. And I can be a part of what we're all a part of right now. And my ancestor altar is like popping right now. It's just like a very lit, enlivened space, if that makes sense. Like I visit it often. I I bring presents and gifts. You know, I'm just like, there's so many more of you now. And so I need to bring more of myself to honor this space, you know? So there's just been a lot of that, of just coming into a different reckoning with death comes for all of us. And sometimes it's in these big sweeps and sometimes it's in these isolated moments, but it's coming for all of us. And so I've been really treating the world as like this fragile, you know, beautiful, temporary experience and just honoring the, that line, the life and death line a lot more. Mm. Yeah, That really resonates the, the importance of honoring grief right now. At the beginning of the pandemic, we, we had a death doula on. You were kind of like ruminating in the, in the back of my mind. I felt like something that would be right like in your alley. 
Um, and something else you just said that that stuck out was um, what needs to be written. I think a lot of times it's easy to think about what we want to write or what we're trying to write. I think that's what you hear the most from writers is is what we're trying to do. So what need as a as a driving force really resonates. Uh, but I want to go to a, a second question we've been asking in the suite. So writing, right, is so big and so heavy. It holds this balance of like the really magical and also the really mechanical. So we all have in some ways these like tensions or relationships to it. So, you know, young people write, but then there's also folks who it's a part of their identity. So when it goes from writing to being a writer. um, And so that's a construct we've been asking all of our guests to to play with. Um, Do you see yourself as a writer? And if so, when was that moment that you went from just writing to being a writer? Because we're all people in our residence right now, in our respective <laughs> yes. residences, but you're the only writer in residence on the call. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so fascinating because I, I keep having these moments and I my friends reflect it. because so I'll come back and be like, this year is it. I'm a writer. Like, this is it. And they're like, bitch, you've been doing that. Like, wh- you're the only one who thinks that's not what you're up to all the time or whatever. And when I trace it back, you know, I, I really do feel like it was the first identity that I had, occupational identity or sense of self, like, what am I doing in the world? My mom says, like, before I even learned the alphabet, I was trying to figure out how to construct stories. And, and, you know, I really was a consummate reader as soon as I could learn to read. And I was, I was like, and I've got my own stories. I've got my own essays. Sixth grade was like the first memory I have of like publishing something and being rewarded for that and just being like, okay. And yeah, so I, I don't, there's no before being a writer for me. It's been like a through line, but then I have wrestled with, and I think all writers and people who write wrestle with is how much is this essential piece of my life when there's other callings that are maybe more tangible and more immediately rewarding. It's a more clear impact, you know, um, especially when you're just getting your voice, right? Like I was a facilitator in movement space where it's like, each meeting that I come to, I can see that my presence was of use and that justice is going to be able to happen because the people in this room are so incredible. And I, I help them hear each other. I help them move through some hard conflict. So it's very hard to do that and then turn around and be like, but I want to write an alien love story. <laughs> and and just being like, I don't know if that's going to be of, of such clear use, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the piece that has been where I've been playing and challenging myself is, can I trust that justice is going to flow through me no matter what I do? Um, so when I write science fiction, it's often didactic. It's often, you know, parabolistic, moralistic, right? It's often like, how do the people in this story practice justice? How do people in this story move towards liberation? Um, it's not like that side of me is ever absent from anything I write. And then this past five years has been a really transcendent time for me as a writer because I started publishing, not just like on my blog where I've been writing for years, but like putting out books and being like, use this, you know? I've seen how so many more people are able to be touched by the same qualities that I can bring into my facilitation. I'm a synthesizer. That's Mm. what I do in a room (laughs) full of organizers. I am a pattern visualist and um, I really talk about how do you believe in people? What does it look like to build trust? So taking that from like practice ground into page, I could never reach as many people going room to room to room um, or even doing a webinars or trainings, or whatever. I could never reach as many people as deeply as I feel like my books have been able to do. 
that has also been good feedback. It's like, actually, maybe the writing is the most impactful thing you can do at this point. And last little bit I'll say on this is the books have also put me in a different level of visibility, which has changed what any of my other work feels like. So (laughs) it's starting to feel like, okay, I can write, but it's actually harder and harder to find spaces where I can facilitate without that sort of celebrity culture demon on the shoulder, right? That's like, oh, you're Adrian Marie Brown. I'm like, no, I'm still just Adrian. Like I want to facilitate and be in the background of this room and like center, you know, the organizing that's happening. But more and more often I show up in spaces and the name or the reputation or some concept people have that is informed by the, the capitalist way we look at visibility, all of that shows up ahead of me in the room. And then I'm having to like try to facilitate that and facilitate them. And that's exhausting and it's distracting, right? So I'm like, I don't think that's, I, I feel less and less of use showing up in that way where the writing is still consistently, like I can see many more stories and lessons to pass on and patterns to name and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I think celebrity makes pretty much any job harder. But facilitation seems like a top five thing that that would like, let me, let me make sure people are connecting (laughs) directly. And there's just this like, like 2001 monolith in the middle, you know? And you know, (laughs) exactly. I'm a monolith. I mean, like, you know, (laughs) it's a monolith because it really is, you know, you can't deactivate it. That that's what I've been finding. Like short of disappearing myself, you can't just deactivate it. Like no matter how resistant I am to it, it can't be deactivated. And for most writers, fame is not actually a huge motivating force or an expectation. You can sort of count like the handfuls of writers from each era where you get to be really famous, I think. And even in that realm, I don't think that that's what's happening for me. But facilitation is definitely not that. <laughs> <laughs> like you do not become a, f- a famous facilitator. <laughs> the next book I have coming up is called Holding Change, The Way of Emergent Strategy Facilitation and Mediation. And it's really kind of a Taoist text on facilitation, brief focus lessons on it. But I talk about that in there that I'm like, if you want to be a facilitator for your life, don't get famous, (laughs) like avoid it at all costs. Like really, you know, I missed the moment when I could have made a different choice. And, but it's fine because I'm a writer and for writing, you know, it works. I love talking to people in interviews. I love writing more books. I can handle the cost of that. Mm, it's so interesting to hear what you said about the facilitation on the page role that it can serve for a larger group of people. And I, I can see many of the ways that those same approaches can transfer. And then I'm sure that there are things that don't. What has felt like a uh, kind of a square peg round hole thing of like, I want this to reach people and I can put it on a page, but it just doesn't quite get there? Yeah. I mean, when you're facilitating a room and you tell people, turn and face the person next to you. You know that they are in the vibrational arena of each other. There's a tension that's visible, palpable. You can actually see what's happening. And in that space, anything becomes possible, right? Like those people could be asked questions that lead them to tension, ask questions that lead them to deepening, ask questions that lead them to love, ask questions that lead them to solidarity, ask questions that lead them to transformation. What you're trusting is that when you put it into a book um, or you put instructions into a book, that either people will go and find locations to practice or that they can, in the reading of it, somehow access that same witness, that same presence. 
and it's harder to see, you know, because when I'm facilitating a room, you can literally feel in the room when the energy goes up and it's like, oh, they are connecting with each other. Then there's a quiet, it's almost always literally a moment where it's all quiet at once. And you're like, okay, they're about done in the next 10 minutes, in the next five seconds, whatever, we're about to be done with this. And that kind of thing is hard to translate. It's to be like, if I say to my readers, okay, right now let's take a breath. I'm like, do they take that breath or do they just read that? I'm like, that's great. Take a breath. <laughs> like, like, bitch, I'm not taking a breath. Like, where's the lesson or whatever? Like, I don't know the energy with which people are going to read it, how present they might be in that moment. What's actually being practiced? What's actually getting embodied in the person who's reading it? And the main feedback I have is what people actually then come back and say to me, which is I'm on page one and I'm already feeling this or, you know, I got to this part and I was crying or I got to the, you know, I get that kind of feedback or people like, I got this and I have some real questions. I'm finding it even harder in the fiction realm. I'm like writing more fiction this year. I'll be putting out some fiction work. And it's just like, this is literally a whole world in my head. Can you see it? <laughs> like, Does this make sense? Like when I say green wall, like what color green do you see? What texture wall do you see? Is it close? Is it far? Like, so those kind of things, concept building, idea building, and then world building are these like levels of like comprehension. Yeah. And without the the feedback, it's tough to know for sure. Yeah. So one of, one of the, the commentaries I have, and I, I, I guess this is gas. Yeah. Okay. I'm here for it. That's one of the other thing I missed during the pandemic. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, I don't think I said that often. <laughs> like, you know, for all the anxiety, we could get through the limitations and all of that after the gas. But, but let's, <laughs> let's just like say this and... And it feels true to me that there is a a uniqueness in how you are functioning as like a literary actor right now. But I also don't have many historical references in the way that you are read. You know, the last three or four of your texts um, are not just like conversation pieces or just like the hot thing that radicals are talking about. Um, they are being read collectively and actively and being used as guides for facilitation, but they're not workbooks. And so that is a one, just a gift and an offering. And I don't know, you may have like a, a lineage or a legacy that you point to in, in doing that, but I, it's not legible to me. Um, and so for you in making that legible, I am thankful as someone who one, is trying to create, but two, just seeing, you know, the the women in films, the organizers. And I know that like, we're in like a little bit of a high point in pandemic, but over the years, the ways in which your work has mobilized folks to do their own work, and not just as an organizer or something that's popping on the internet, literally through a text that is published. Um, yeah, it's, it's really unique. So thank you for, for, for bringing that impact and that, that legacy. Uh, but I, I would love to know a little bit more in terms of process when you're approaching the page. The language, the tone comes off so differently. What are the intentions in that? What are the mechanisms that get you to like facility writing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> is what I'm going to call Facilla it. writing. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Give me new terminology, honey. Um, I love that. You know, well, first of all, thank you for all of that because I often have a feeling of like, is it okay to write it like this, to do it like this? And it may sound odd because her work was mostly fiction, but Octavia Butler really is a guide for me where she was writing fiction, but it felt so instructional and accessible. And it wasn't the most beautiful writing but it was very clear and it was very, you know, like you read it and you're like, I can pack a bag to be prepared for apocalypse. And like, I can think through how I would negotiate with aliens. Like I can, I can 
internalize some of this, thinking about patterns and who am I in pattern with? And she really is a, is a guidepost uh, for me for when I'm thinking about, I want to write conversationally always, because that's also how I want to read. You know, I'm like, I want to read something that feels like I'm in conversation with someone who's like, oh, I, I think you can hear me. I think you can understand this. That's what I like to read is I like to feel like the, the writer trusts me to be with them in the conversation and trust me to make my own meaning of my part of it. And so I try to write to people as if I was having a conversation with people. My process is, I'd love to say that it's all thoughtful, but it really is like waves and like explosions and, you know, just something comes over me where it's like, now you need to write this piece. Now you're feeling this strong feeling. I'm, I'm a kind of writer who often will wake up with something fully formed or mostly formed and just be like, I need to get myself to a computer or in my phone, or I just need to get somewhere where I can get it out. I think it was like 2003, 2004, back when it was like Friendster. I made a commitment to myself to post 300 words a day somewhere that could be considered public. So I didn't know that every time I did that, it was notifying everyone I was connected to in Friendster. But before long, I had a following of people. And I was posting about like my heartache and just whatever was happening in the day. But I just wanted to get to a place where I was like, I feel comfortable publishing. So that was the first stage of process. And I feel like that took a section of years. And then around 2010, I got feedback from someone about like the pieces where I was really ideating and philosophizing. And they were like, those pieces are so much stronger than the ones where you're like just reporting back on an event, you know, because I was kind of like, had self-appointed myself like a little bit of a movement reporter, like we were just at this meeting and here's what happened. And it was awesome, you know? And they were like, yeah, but the ones where you're talking about justice, where you're talking about how are we going to do this together? Those really resonate. They feel more thoughtful. So that was the next phase that helped my process. I started recognizing that I didn't have to publish stuff right away, that I could like let it out of me and then sit with it and then return to it and edit and work it. And I could even send it to people I trusted and get their feedback and let that inform. And that feels like what really has happened for this last phase of my work is like from emergent strategy on that I was like, I have readers, I have people helping me see what I can't see on the page. You know, they're like, you think this is clear, but I don't understand the reference you're making. So if you want people to know that you're actually talking about the Black Panthers, you need to say, as the Black Panthers did in this period, or you need to make a footnote or something else. That's also where it started to be possible for my writing to go just beyond the movement spaces that I call home and inhabit. Um, Because in those spaces, I'm like, we're always speaking in references. And it's not just like jargon. It's just like, we're talking about a breakfast program. You don't have to say this breakfast program that the Black Panthers did, but you, you just say the breakfast program and people know. And so that next level of being like, well, is this actually accessible? Because now I'm starting to be much more interested in the people who are outside of movement, who are looking at the world and saying, I want to create change. I want to be a part of, you know, I want to be in the room where it happens, right? I don't want to know how we do this. My thinking has changed. And as my thinking has changed, my writing process has had to also change. And I'm like, I want to speak to movement. So one thing that Octavia did was she spoke to Black people. She wrote stories with Black protagonists. She was speaking to Black people, but she wrote in a way that was also universal. So even if you're not a Black person, you'll be able to see a future and see lessons inside of this. I try to practice that. I'm always writing to Black people and sometimes surprised when others respond because I'm like, oh, right. Everybody can see this. Um, <laughs> like yesterday, actually, it's so funny. I, I'm like 
created a set of prompts for Black History Month that are just like engaging people to really bring history to the present. And I just only thought about Black people responding to it. And I and a ton of white people were like, yes, girl, like I'm going to do this. And I was like, oh yeah, right. Actually, that's, you should be thinking about Black people in your life. But, well, we do tend to be the ones looking for prompts for the month. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> of like, how do I engage? I mean, this is a moment where the the human things are human, right? The human things are human. And so organizers are also human. And people who are not organizers don't think of themselves as being a movement also need to understand how to create change. And so I want my writing to be something that shows people like, here's what it looks like. And you could do it at a bank. You could do it at the post office. You could do it with your family. Abolition, transformative justice, being in interdependent relationships can happen anywhere. So I want to write like that. I have a quick note for listeners, particularly the non-Black listeners that, that may bring you to this Black History buff, and then I want to get into the shit. But here's my prompt for white folks that are really interested in Black History Month. Make a calendar note in your phone for like Thanksgiving or December and start making your plans then. Here's what happens. <laughs> That's right every year is the last week of January and the first two weeks of February. <laughs> people get really excited and realize like, oh shit, it's Black History Month. And then start trying to like plan things and ask for things. And it's also the shortest month. Exactly. Like, They're like, can you come be a speaker? Within six days notice, start making your Black History Month plans and ask by December 18th, 2021 for next Black History Month. You're too late already if you ask. I don't know why you picked my birthday as the day that it had to be fixed by, <laughs> oh, yeah. but that's no, fine. No, no. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. It's my birthday. It's a benchmark. That's fine. <laughs> I, will, like, uh, I will offer that <laughs> to the movement. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, but Kiss, can we co-ask this question? Can we like... Sure. So I think being specific because, you know, the cat's out the bag of like, you know, what's happening and what happened with We Will Not Cancel Us is so meta to all of the questions we've been asking about writing and the practice around pushing a radical imagination, relationship to audience, the relationship between curiosity and fear. And so I want to note that also when we asked you to do this, it hadn't been in my life yet. And coincidentally, since we asked to do this, like in a real space, like I've had a movement reading of it, right? So just in terms of the wow. matter, like it wasn't like, it was like, oh, this shit is hot and popping. Like, let's get into this. It's just like, one of those one of those things. Yeah, yeah. And I think where I want to start is in this idea of conversation that you talked about in how you even approach putting words down of trying to have a conversational, not just tone, but approach. And there's a difference between being conversational and actually being in conversation. <laughs> um, yes. And it also speaks to, I think, some of that differentiation between facilitating a room and trying to create that for people through this medium uh, and some of the limitations of that. What have you learned for yourself in terms of best practices about setting up the space or facilitating the room for the conversation in your own work through this experience of putting something out in the world, receiving forceful, impactful, valid critique, and then figuring out how to reshape the next part of the conversation? One is, I think if you are going to accumulate any kind of social cachet, then use it. You know, if there's a way to use it to, to open up a conversation, use it. Um, I feel very grateful for the experience I had of creating this, even though it was very hard to go through it, to like be in it day to day. Generally, I didn't, I've never had like a goal. Like I want to be likable. Like I, of course I love to be liked or I love to be respected or what, you know, like those basic things, but 
but it wasn't something I was like, I'm contorting for that effort. And part of facilitation is really trying to hold that neutral ground and not create something that people start to, to throw something at, right? You're like, if you're going to throw things, I want you to be able to throw them at each other and then have a safe space to be like, okay, here's what I caught. Here's what I understood all that. Suddenly I was like the thing, <laughs> you know, I, I made myself the thing, but it did a couple of things for me. One is I learned that I could handle it. I could handle serious public critique and that I could like soften. And if anything, I, I think the lesson was, oh, I could have softened even faster. You know, when the piece came, I felt so passionate writing it. I felt such a passionate love for movement and a desire for movement to be able to make it over the, what feels like the hurdle of this pattern of destroying each other. And it's good to have that passion. And when the feedback came in, I think it was harder because it took longer for me to hear it, right? So my initial response was like, you didn't read the whole thing. You didn't really read with love. You know, you didn't really, it's me, it's Adrian, it's me. Like read it (laughs) like it's Adrian talking to you, you know, like all of this stuff. And because I'm just like, I only love you. But then I was like, you don't, you know, why would anyone trust that? They don't know me. They, now I've, I've reached that place where a lot of people are going to engage with my work who we've never been in a shared space. They don't know that I love them. They don't know that I'm, I'm really wanting to protect something precious. They don't know necessarily that I'm a survivor. They don't know that I've spent a huge portion of my adult life getting survivors out of abusive scenarios. They don't know all these pieces that I know. And so it was so helpful to be like, and it took really close contact. Like my sister had to be the one who was like, girl, (laughs) can we talk? Can you hear this? Right. (laughs) Um, And I was like, oh, well, if you say it, (laughs) I could really let it in. Or like comrades that I'd had, you know, known for decades had to be the ones who really helped me. I was like, what am I missing? If one person critiques you, you pay attention to it. But if it's a couple of thousand people that are like having a feeling, having a shared thought, then it's like, okay, what do I, how do I want to engage with that? Even if I still disagree with some parts of it, that's the right you have as a, as a writer, as a thinker to be like, maybe I'm not there yet. You know, and I always say that I'm like, I'm not disagreeing from a righteousness place. I'm disagreeing. Like I might not be there yet. I might not be evolved to that place that y'all are at yet. That's what critique is so incredible, you know, because you might be behind yourself or behind the movement and thinking you're like, I'm trying to look from a bird's eye perspective or from a pattern perspective. So that all feels like lessons. I think I learned the real limitations of social media as a space for introducing content like this. I think a lot of people still would have had the critique reading the whole piece, but because I I tried to excerpt it myself and put it on social media, that was one of the major backfires. The harshest critiques that I received came from people who first experienced the piece that way. And, you know, they're just like, this isn't it. And I'm like, you're right. That isn't it. <laughs> it's like so much. It's like a 20 pages of thoughts. Yeah, that's that one twelfth of it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, well, I did that to myself. I, I, I created that condition. And then I, you can't go backwards on social media. And then the process of moving from the actual piece and the critique to the book, that was also a lesson because there was definitely an energy of like, don't do this. Don't put the book out. You're going to continue to get critiqued. Like you can't make this right. And I had to relinquish that. I had to be like, I'm not trying to make it right. I want to make this clear. And that felt very different. I am sitting in real questions. I mean, it makes me almost tear up right now, like how much the questions mean to me, how deeply committed I am to us answering these questions with what 
movement does in this moment. I can't back down from the questions I have because they actually feel really relevant right now. And I can relinquish everything I did wrong. (laughs) I almost was like, I could just put a book out with five questions in it and I would be satisfied, but those questions deserve the space. So yeah, a, a ton of learning. And I will say I've heard tons of feedback now also from people who read the original piece, hated it, and then read the book and were like, you, you got it. You understood what, what was wrong with the original piece and you corrected it. And the whole process is a case study of the thing you're talking about. This was a useful book and it's a useful tool. And that feels helpful, you know? It's like almost too meta. <laughs> discarding and the the challenge of discarding in, in because of its relationship to of something's relationship to harm or a person's relationship to harm to then the just the levels of that in real time and whether it's a like fully fleshed out case study what what it showed to me was this like potential for public revision Mm-hmm. that I think we have a real discomfort with because of the way that art gets commodified and that ideas get commodified. And we've talked to a lot of writers and editors in this suite and the the intimacy of that relationship between those two roles, whether that's just inside themselves or with another person, it's this very vulnerable personal place to ask that same level of trust with a wider group of people who may be engaging in good faith or may not be for whatever reason, it seems like there's a lot of pitfalls there and it's really necessary to figure out the questions that you're asking. Um, That piece around like good faith or not good faith, it was really interesting to play with that for myself too. Like I went and looked at the different critiques that were coming and then I got curious about the people who were issuing the critiques, you know, and I was like, where are these folks coming from? And what excited me, and this is going to sound, this might not, translate to people. But it was so exciting to me that I was like, I don't even know these people at all, which means movement has grown so much, right? Because there was really a a moment in my movement life where I felt like I know everyone or most everyone or all the organizations, you know, I was one of the facilitators for the U.S. social forum. I was like, if there's an organization that is doing justice work in the U.S. right now, I probably know their name. And so then I was like, there are these huge pockets of people and I don't know any of them and I don't know any of the organizations. And, and I'm like, that's beautiful, right? That's a whole set of people. Like that's, that's what happens at an intergenerational level. That's what happens when stuff is actually growing. It humbled me that I was just like, great, you're of a certain age and now you're of a certain movement generation. And if I'm going to continue writing into movement space, I want to write into that expanded growing movement space that was a a big part of what was the emphasis of being like, I am going to let these lessons influence the next iteration of this that actually gets published because I want to affirm that there's this growing burgeoning movement that is very complex. And I want this to be relevant for all of us. I mean, the, the, the notion of like cartography or like still mapping or like uncharted an uncharted terrain or landscape that that's really exciting um, and, and, and a really powerful reflection. I want to be careful because in trying to be poetic or effective, I, I, I feel like I overclaim things sometimes. Don't we all? <laughs> I mean, isn't that the thing? Yeah. But but one of the things that I, I, I'm really hearing from this meta on meta public episode is the relationship between 
revision and accountability. And I'm almost feeling like they are expressions of the same thing. I want to be careful and maybe just say that they're, they're parallel. But if I was just like being bold. Well, because it matters <laughs> to where the revisions come from, right? It matters so much. Like I'm used to reading my own work. And for years, that's what I mean. It's like I read my own work, especially my more poetic work. And I would just be like, this is it. It's not perfect. It's not the best thing, but this is it. This is the most honest way that I can express what is happening, you know, from, from my head to a page. But then you get into the conversation of when I published uh, Unthinkable Thoughts, which was the original blog post, and it's still there, right? Because it, for me, it's an archival material now. But when I wrote it, I read that thing over many times and I revised it and revised it and revised it and revised it. Like when I posted it, I felt like, this is it. And I, I don't think that everyone's going to love it necessarily, but this is really how I'm thinking about this. And the accountability revision was a next level of like, oh, this wasn't it. Things that I thought made sense were taken in a different context that was like, oh, I totally get <laughs> where you're coming from. So those revisions, I also had to accept, I can't just do those by myself. So that's when I called in squat and I had many different kinds of people reading what the next iteration would be and really saying like, I'm willing to relinquish certain language here, but I need help coming up with the new metaphors. My sister, again, I get all praise to Autumn Brown because she's like, Adrian, you're an emergent strategist. Like surely something in nature <laughs> can, can like be, and I was like, oh, right. <laughs> you know, she's like, how about a feeding frenzy? How about uh, piranhas? How about this? How about, you know, and it was just like so helpful to have her to be like, I know you can. Now when I, I hold the book. I reread the book when it came back, you know, when I got the box of it. And I was like, oh, I feel at peace with these revisions. There may be critique of this next iteration, but it's not the critique of like, you wrote this alone or you wrote this without thinking of us. This is like, I was really trying to think of us in the grandest sense and how we can all hear and ask ourselves these questions. And I tied it into like, this is a long lineage of question for me. And I think it will continue to be a long, I think we've got a couple of decades to go of figuring this yeah. out. You're, you're again the perfect guest. Uh, I'm going to unpack a few things and throw it to Daniel because we have we have a question about metaphor because that really is something that that resonated. Great to the point of revision and accountability. So one, I want to name, even if you're still limited in it, and even if you haven't got all the way, and I didn't hear all the critiques, so I want to like, in good faith, give space to the things that that. I don't know people are holding, uh, but from what I'm seeing as a person that ex- intentionally does not engage Twitter is that this, <laughs> that this in itself um, is an act of accountability, the way that you responded. Um, and I want to bring that back to like the real time and also place myself of like on a, and me and Daniel before every like interview, I have to like have these little therapy sessions because, <laughs> um, you know, I am so <laughs> over. <sighs> I am holding so much conflict and harm and feel often compromised and complicit and limited in trying to be as responsible as possible. But all of our tools are either inadequate or in conflict with each other. Seeing this exercise is helpful. Um, you're asking the question that has been the most important to me. I've asked all our historians and they don't really have an answer. Like Robin Kelly, Angela, um, Barbara Ransby of there's this three headed destructive spool that is violent repression, liberal like co-optation, and then it's this internal destructive agent. Um, And I'm at a place now where one, like just like fumbling through the repair and and trying to work. Shout out to Miriam Kaba and Shira Hassan. It's just true. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, but also, I feel really scared because I've gotten really good at asking the questions and naming complications, but I don't feel comfortable inviting folks into this movement space because I know what comes with it. And it feels irresponsible, particularly for a young person, right? To say, hey, come deal with all this shit. Um, and we haven't really worked it out. That's right. um, and so I'll stop with the unpacking here of, I also want to name in accountability processes, we don't speak about it as how important literacy has been for both the people who have been harmed and people who do harm. In our abolitionist world right now, the most tangible tool we have is people writing it out. And so I just want to yes. like name that explicitly. I don't think we like lift that up enough. Um, and that's not in our writing classes enough of how we write through these things. So yes, thank you for letting me unpack all the things I heard. I was struggling to get them to a question. So I'm going to pass it to Daniel, who has a very good thought about <laughs> extended It's very metaphor. fun to see you like physically passing it between the Zoom squares here. Um, Dame, I completely agree. And it's it was in some ways affirming to see that the central question actually wasn't this question about canceling. It's this question about how do we make sense of internal conflict and the relationships between each other? And if we're not going to just refuse to acknowledge it, which is what people have done for a really long time, is this person hurt this person, but we, that's not, we don't have time for that. Insistent on not doing that, then we end up in this place of conflict with tools in our toolbox that don't fix the problem, quote, unquote, fix. And that's where I think some of the potency of metaphor comes in. And and that's what, in reading the introduction or, or the piece in the book in response to the uh, critiques, seeing you of all people say that you were looking for new metaphor, um, when you're like, in my mind, you understand the potency of metaphor more than anybody. Um, yeah, my and, happy place. <laughs> and also have become a metaphor. I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, Adrian Moore-ish or like yes. emergent strategy has become a, a, a placeholder language for a type of approach. I think. Oh, interesting. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But also the no, I, but, I but the way mean. that metaphor can kind of meld into something else, which is some of the biomimicry of the piece, which isn't just this is like this, but this is this, and these are connected, and these are in conversation. Yeah. Um, what do you see as the like potency and radical potential of metaphor? as a writer and as a movement worker? Mm. I love that question. Um, one thing I want to say that I think will open the way for me to get into it is, you know, often for me, when I hit a metaphor that is like, yeah, that's it. It's so satisfying. Like, it's like almost an erotic experience. I'm like, <gasps> yes, this metaphor. Yeah. Like, like, I'm just like, that's the only way I can ever talk about this now. Like, I just, that's right. And so this, sum, this past summer and that, that process was like, oh, you have to really pay attention to who else is using the metaphors. Metaphors get co-opted, they get claimed. And, you know, I'm very much like, I'm free. I'm just going to claim it back. I'm going to take it. You know, I was like, this metaphor works better for what I need it for. It doesn't work like that. And so there's something about, you know, or it can work like that, but not without a ton of intention. So I feel like that's one piece for me. Metaphors are so potent and they can change everything about how a conversation is going. You know, you were saying, I think, Damien, you said, like, I, I avoid Twitter. I, I don't avoid Twitter, but I avoid things that feel like they're disrupting my my radical work. So, like, if I go on Twitter, it's very briefly, and I have, like, certain people that I follow that I know will inspire and challenge me. I don't look at, like, what is the right-wing 
saying or what is their language. I don't, you know, the whole last administration, I'm like, I'm not watching those press thing. Like, that's not good for my blood pressure. I'm a black woman. I've got to protect my body. You know, there's like so many things that I'm like, I'm not necessarily engaging the metaphors of my opposition or tracking that. That became something that became, that feels more clear to me now is that when I want to take a metaphor and really claim it, especially if it's one outside of nature, nature beyond human nature, but there's something, you know, I'm like, I feel very comfortable working with the language of mushrooms, which is one of the main metaphors I chose to finally land on is like, we need to be processing up what is toxic out of our systems. Mushrooms do that. They are able to do that and still be edible, still be, you know, fecund, still be um, a contribution to the system. No matter how toxic they were at one point, they can move past that. And I have to believe that if they can, as one of our oldest ancestors, we can. So that metaphor, I feel super at ease in the metaphor. And I feel like when we find the right metaphors, that happens. It's like, that's it. And then I also think that metaphor, one of the biggest potentials of it is it allows us to speak beyond our own small chorus, right? That it's like, oh, in this world, we can all talk about like, is this this kind of organizing or that kind of organizing, whatever. But then if we want to talk to masses and masses of people who have been lulled into thinking panic is the only response, lulled into thinking there's nothing they can do, we have to have compelling metaphors where they can see themselves like, oh, I don't have to become Harriet Tubman to be a part of this. I can be an earthworm. That's doable, right? That feels like an attainable contribution. I could be a little mushroom. I could be a my, part of a mycelial network. You know, to me, metaphors of abundant participation are really important right now, uh, where we're trying to deprogram the singular heroic narrative thing. So people are like, oh, there has to be one. You know, the civil rights movement was Martin Luther King, right? And it's like, no, 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 that's not how movements work. That's not how that movement worked. That's not how this movement's going to work. It's many people inside of this manyness. We want to uplift the right ones, shine the light on them, not so that they as people get shine, but so that the ideas and approaches, you know, I'm like, I want to shine a light on the way Stacey Abrams is moving. Look at how collaborative and far reaching her strategies are. Look at, you know, what Patrice and Alicia and Opal did with Black Lives Matter and how they didn't let the structure of like, oh, we got to get the right infrastructure. It's like, maybe the infrastructure will come, maybe it won't. But the message, the narrative is the most important thing. And that is global. And everyone has to contend with it. And every electoral candidate has to contend with it. Like you have to, every sport team has to put it somewhere. <laughs> like I'm like, so they did what they needed to do on the level of narrative. We've never seen narrative have that kind of impact, right? And Black Lives Matter is almost a metaphor at this point. Right? Right. So it's, it's like, it's, it's like, what would a world look like if that, anyway, you know, so you start to really play around with how can you give people something that allows them to see themselves inside of a change process? I think metaphor is the way we do that. And I think nature has the best metaphors for us. So there's a question I asked way back with emergent strategy, which is like, what would it look like if our movements moved and felt like a flock of birds in murmuration? What would that look like if we were like a school of fish avoiding predation? What would it look like if we were like mushrooms, mycelial networks underground or oak trees holding on to each other underground? Those core metaphors, that's still the questions I want to ask. And now that's the fiction I want to write. It's like, well, what would it look like? Let's write about that. Oak trees don't get to travel. What, you know, now we're in an oak tree phase. Um, you were just giving yourself writing prompts is really what you were doing. You thought All the, we all thought the you were time, all questions. the time. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, every question 
you know, and, and a good, I feel like for me, my good writing process is like, when I go back to my work, it can spark something new for me. Pleasure activism was a new territory that emerged from asking the questions inside of emergent strategy. Mm-hmm. I want to be mindful yeah, of your yeah. time. So, <laughs> so I was going to say, can we do a, do a, if we have more time into the closing question? Sure. So we have this segment that is very meta for the question that, that, that's in it. It's called, if we have more time, which is the understanding that like, this oh, is a cute. big thing. <laughs> I would love for you to hear it. I would love for people to like, think about it, but obviously we're not going to get into it. And then we have a, a, two, a two part question Daniel's going to ask. Um, and so for me, it's actually, it was about time. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, very come on. Something that I feel in this exact second, um, but something you've done publicly. And I think we've learned is that you are very intentional about how making time for yourself, what you will and won't do with your time. Also the use of sabbatical as like a personal and political tool. And I think even this piece in text, like part of your framing, it was like, Part of coming out of sabbatical. Exactly. I was like, I went away and I came back and this is a <laughs> and mess. Some, and some of the, even <laughs> yes. the, the discord yeah. that may have happened came from like this time and space thing that you do with yourself. Um, and as somebody who's a part, a big secret of this suite is I'm working to be more of a writer and it's really hard and scary. Um, and one of the things is I'm on Zoom um, seven days a week. And so like trying to figure out how to make time and space and what that relationship is for your creative process. So that would have been a question of not just that practice, but particularly in relationship to the pen and page. Uh, but if we had a little more time. You think about that, maybe maybe you can we'll text it to it us or something. Yes. All right. Well, and I will say, we're not going to talk about it. And I am thinking about writing a book on writing for the meta-meta, the misconceptions I think so many people have on writing and what it actually looks like to be a writer, maybe a journal or something like that, but just something that's like, here's how you lock yourself into your writer skeletal structure. And you, and you, everyone's is different, but here's here's how you start to feed your own. So. Mm. But if you're trying, you are writing. That's the other thing. If you're already trying, then you are writing. I wish we had more time and shit. All right, go ahead, kids. <laughs> to that, if you're trying, you are writing point The the last two-parter that we've been asking every guest in the suite is what's the best or most impactful uh, advice you ever got about writing and what's the worst? Let's see. The worst is definitely um, write to market. Think of your audience and try to write for them. Think of who you want to pitch and sell this to and write to them. Um, That I'm like, oh, I could write a lot of things I don't care about that way and never feel happy. Um, and then the best advice, um, I think came from my friend, Danny McLean, um, who's also a writer reporter. Um, but she was just like, you need a space of your own. That's just for writing. It's not greedy to claim that space. If writing is the thing that you want to do, what I continue, you know, part of why I have the sabbatical process and writing, you know, I, I create my own writing retreats. Um, Cause I'm like, I want to go write. I don't really want to have to like interact with anyone, <laughs> you know, which a lot of the writing retreats are like, then we have like lunch and dinner and everything together. Like, I don't <laughs> want that. I just want to like be in the woods, smelly, hair undone. Like I just have a, such a visual nar- poetic narrative of like what a writer looks like. I've let go of the smoking cigarettes in Paris, you know, that, that part <laughs> I had to let go of, but I really want the solitude and I need the space of my own. And actually the pandemic has finally been a place where that space of my own was not something I traveled to and constructed, which I'm very good at. Like I can go to another place, to Mexico or to the woods in Tennessee or something 
and create a writer's place. This year is the first year that I feel like I really created a space in my home that is my writing space. And I can, I think I can show it to you because of this, but it's over there. Let's see. Oh, the sunlight. Right? The, the sunlight is coming through, but it's just like the, all those plants. It's really beautiful. It feels good to be there. The plants need sun. I need sun. The plants need water. I need water. Like, I feel like they're co-authoring everything with me. Now, that doesn't mean I don't still spend a ton of time writing on the toilet, <laughs> writing, you know, I, I will like have an idea. I'll start it on the toilet. And then I'm like, there's no reason to be on this toilet anymore. <laughs> I'll stand up and I lean over my washing machine, which I'm blessed to have a washing machine right next to it. And I'll just be like, Brr. and my partner will be like, why aren't you back at your desk? You know, you're writing. I was like, it's just, this is where it is right now. This is happening right now. Um, so it doesn't mean that those things don't, you know, the passion doesn't still take over and you write wherever you are, but there's something about getting myself in the routine of going to the desk that when I think of the writers like Walter Mosley and Ursula Le Guin, you know, the folks that I'm like, these were prolific writers who just really made way for what needed to come through them. I'm like, they found their way to the desk. Well, once once your uh, legs go numb on the toilet, it means it's time to revise, <laughs> I think, is the, is the rule. That's where it's like, you've taken this idea as far as it can go. But I love toilet writing. I, I Someday I would love to do a set of, like an anthology that was just like written on the toilet. And it was like, just pieces throughout history or whatever. It should be Things a toilet book. So great. It should it be like, a book. Was exactly. writing all about love? You know, Malcolm X, like, what did he write on the toilet? Like, I just feel like everyone has been writing on the toilet forever, but we all try to pretend like it only happens, like, in some writing sanctuary. It's like... So make your your space. Make sure you wipe. Let's get out of here. Um, (laughs) Adrian, thank you so, so, so much. Um, Thank you. This this feels like a loaded question with you, but how can folks find you in the ways you want to be found? Mm, That's good. Um... <laughs> I'm like I don't want to be found. <laughs> well, that's a valid answer too. Um, Instagram is the most I ever want to be found. Like I feel like my Instagram, Adrian Marie Brown, that's where I share things that are beautiful, inspiring, intriguing, solution oriented. Like I really try to be like this is the best of the world that I've seen. I try to offer those things in Instagram. Beautiful. We're at uh, we're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. Man, I don't really want to be found, but I'm at Damon underscore AF on. Uh, <laughs> I never ask you, Dave. I've just been you being never found this me. whole time. <laughs> Podcasters are like, I just want to be found on my podcast. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but you'll find us back on the line, uh, wrapping up our, our notebook suite next week. Um, Adrian, thank you again so much. Thank you. This was another wonderful conversation. I appreciate y'all. Appreciate you. you. Much love to the people. Peace. <laughs>